Father, we're grateful for this day, Father's Day as we know it. We're so thankful that even when Paul prayed and bowed his knee to the, to the Father, um, from whom every family and in heaven and earth is named, Father, we're so thankful for you, Father, redeeming us, saving us, giving us your grace, your mercy. Father, to God be the glory is our prayer. So, Lord, I would pray that you would draw us now, even as we sing, I want to know you, that that would be the passion, the refrain of our heart, the refrain of our lives. So, Father, take this word, minister to us, Father, illuminate our minds and hearts that we might see the truth, that we might understand something more of what Paul meant when he said to him, be the glory and in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Guide us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Ephesians 3.21 states that to him, be the glory in the church. And I thought I would just take a few weeks to, to look at that great truth on the glory of God before we proceed in Ephesians chapter 4. Really, I've been, I started the book of Ephesians with the thought of really wanting to get to chapter 4. In fact, I was just going to exposit 4, 1 through 16. And as I prayed and began to think through it, I realized it'd be better to teach all of the book of Ephesians. But before we touch into chapter 4, I thought it might be uh, helpful just for a few weeks if I could just stop on that theme there of 321, to Him be the glory in the church. There's a catechism that's helpful. It's called the Geneva Catechism, and it opens up with this question, what is the chief end of life? And the answer is that men may know God, their maker. And well said, and we just sang that, Lord, I want to know you more. Unfortunately, we have allowed other things to crowd in on our understanding of God. We are guilty, I believe, of what God says in Psalm 50, verse 21, when he said there that you thought that I was just like you. I mean, when we think about the character of God or the glory of God, the, the attributes of God, I hope it would go beyond what God said in that psalm that you thought I was just like you. In fact, one scholar said idolatry is not just bowing down to a statue in a pagan temple in a third world country. Scripture says that idolatry is to think anything about God that isn't true or attempting to transform him into something that he isn't. And I think that's true. Thinking about God, something that isn't true or changing him into something that he's not. A.W. Tozer, maybe some of you have read him. He's back in the previous century. He wrote concerning the desperate need for the church to revise its concept of God to, due to a very uh, distorted conception of him. Tozer said this, it is my opinion that the Christian conception of God current 
He said, in the 20th century, is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to moral calamity. I mean, your view, my view, our view as a church of God is crucial. And I think today, as I look at the landscape of evangelicalism in the 21st century, sometimes in a desire to be relevant, we have stripped God of His greatness. We have stripped God of His glory. I mean, of course, God remains the same in essence. We said that's His intrinsic glory. But at least in the eyes of the onlooking world, He has been buried beneath the veneer of relevance. In fact, it was years ago now, I received an ad in the mail for how a church advertised their Sunday service. And they gave you on this little advertisement that came in the mail, top 10 reasons to attend, and then the name of the church. And I, I had to think, I'm sure it was top 10 reasons, because I'm sure that's what David Letterman did on his Saturday night show or his nightly show, top 10 reasons. But here were the reasons to attend this church, descending from number 10 down to number one. Number 10, we don't play organ music. <laughs> number nine, contemporary, meaningful, growing church. Number eight, exciting, uplifting, upbeat music. Number seven, relevant yet fun children's programs. Number six, a strong, positive impact on your life. Number five, the fifth reason you should come, is entertaining dramas. Number four, uh, outreach opportunities. You can make a difference. Number three, it's a fun place to be. You'll make lasting friends. Number two, dynamic never dull sermons. And the number one reason to attend this church is the sermon series where it says it's 10 steps to a magnificent life. That's why you should go to this church. In fact, what struck me there was the adjectives. Exciting, relevant, entertaining, fun, dynamic and magnificent. Now, uh, certainly a church needs to be engaging. I wouldn't argue against that. But I fear that we are in danger of submerging the biblical doctrine of God's character into a oblivion in our desire to be relevant. I mean, much of what is being said of God today comes off almost like a Broadway production that cast God as a neat guy whom you would like to get a no. Absence, beloved, is any sense of awe, if you will, any sense of the wonder of the character of God as he becomes shrink-wrapped and packaged as a commodity to be sold. I mean, that's a little bit where we've left. And yet when you read the Scripture... You see this in Psalm 145.3. Great 
is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness, in 145.3, is unsearchable. Great is the Lord. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. In fact, it was J.B. Phillips who said, it is my deep-seated conviction that the anemic American brand of Christianity today is at fault He said, in its low view of God. He said, the appalling ignorance, even among Christian people, regarding the God in whom they profess belief, is nothing short of tragic. End of quote. And so we've gathered, because we're in the book of Ephesians. Open your Bible there to Ephesians 3.21. Every single week, and whatever we're doing, we're, un- we're seeking to unpack the Scripture. And another way would be to say, seeking to present to you a high view of God as revealed in the Scripture that you might be in awe of who the Scripture says that God is. But that little phrase there, taking a few weeks on it, to Him be, in 321, Glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. And we stated last week that that scripture, I believe to be the very nexus of all biblical theology. I believe it to be the apex of all of God's purposes in the word of God. To him be glory. Paul said in Romans 11.36, for from him... And through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. And certainly we're familiar with 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink, the most mundane things, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And we begin to embark, what is the glory of God? What does that mean when it says there, to him be the glory in the church, and we're going to look at that next week, but what specifically is the glory of God? We said there's different words that describe what glory is. These words mean something. In the Hebrew, it's the word kavod, okay? And in the New Testament, in Greek, it's the word doxa. But when you put that together, uh, not that you could make God a word study, but they describe who God is. Kavod, at least in the Old Testament, meant two things. Honor, and it meant an excellent reputation. When something was given glory, it communicated honor and an excellent reputation. In fact, a person of worth was his reputation. In fact, just if you just took it literally, Jacob's wealth in Genesis 31 was called his glory. In other words, that worth gave him a name and it was his kavod. When it spoke of Joseph and it talked about his regal position in Egypt, it was called his glory. His kavod in 
Genesis uh, 45, 13. So when you put that together there, it speaks of honor, reputation, splendor, dignity, reverence, if you will. Kavod speaks of an exalted position. And certainly, beloved, when it's used of God, it speaks of the greatest honor, the greatest reputation of any name that is named. So when you think of his name, and it begins to describe those biblical names, he is, in Psalm 24, the king of Kavod. His name is above any name that has been named. But secondly, not only honor and reputation, but it meant to be heavy, heavy. We sometimes used to say that statement was, wow, heavy. Now, in the biblical Old Testament, it sometimes meant literally heavy. Eli, it said, was a heavy man. But the word obviously meant more than that. It came to mean respect. It came to mean excellence. It came to speak of an exalted position. And so when the Bible says that God is glorious, to Him be the glory, the thought would be to Him be the honor, to Him be the reputation, to Him be the weight, if you will, of His exalted position, and there's no one like Him. Now, we said that most often in the Word of God, that term glory is a description of God's character, of God's very nature. Do you remember when I said it's sometimes hard to quantify uh, glory as an attribute? Because glory really is something beyond that. Glory is all of his character. So that as you put the totality of God's nature, his essence, his character together it comes out that he's glorious. And I think this might come up on the screen. Do we have that where I begin to list, or are we missing that? Um, I had a list that he's light, that next slide, I think, that he's love, that he's invisible, that he's unsearchable. These are all of God's character, that he's incorruptible, that he's eternal, that he's immortal, that he's omnipotent, all-powerful, that he's omniscient, all-knowing, that he's omnipresent, he's everywhere present with his entire being, he's immutable, which means that he doesn't change, he's never changed, he always remains the same. In fact, the thought there under immutable is his very name is Yahweh in the Old Testament, we'll get to that today, Yahweh means I am who I am, and it means he's the self-existent one who's, who's never been created. He always has been, and he's immutable. He's only wise. He's God most high. He's perfect. He's holy. We're called to be holy, but he's completely set apart. He's just, praise God. He's great. He's faithful, he's patient, he's jealous, he's compassionate. And when you put them all together, he is, if you will, glorious. In other words, to him be the glory because of who he is, because of his nature, because of his essence, because of his character. And so when we ask that question, what is the glory of God? It is, 
Grace Church, the unveiling of his attributes. So to him, to God, be the glory in Christ Jesus. Now what I want to do with you this morning is highlight what I just taught by way of an illustration. And I want to take you to the book of Exodus this morning. Would you look over to the book of Exodus? And I want to demonstrate that his attributes are his glory and show this to you this morning. And then certainly I have some implications for what this means for our church specifically. Do you remember as you turn to Exodus 32, that they had already been through the Red Sea, they had already been delivered massively, if you will, from Egypt with all the mighty works that God had done. They had walked through the Red Sea. They're moving in the book of Exodus, if you will. And in chapter 32, Israel had committed a horrific sin. It's it's almost unbelievable. He had just told them that you're not to have any gods before me. And then you remember in 32 that they had created and made the golden calf. And as Moses came down from Mount Sinai, God was going to wipe that nation out. He was going to destroy them. He was going to consume them. And do you remember, look at 32 verse 8. It says there in verse 8, they turned aside, God was speaking, they turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them and they have made themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I mean, it was just incredible. But what's, it, it was just so sad and then Moses had to actually intercede for them because he was going, God was going to consume them. So look at verse 12, and I'm still in 32, excuse me. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. What a heart that Moses had. And relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel and your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And then it says in verse 14, and the Lord, amazingly, because of that intercession, relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on this people. He relented, the Bible says. In fact, not only did God preserve them, but but look how he responded in verse 14. It says there in 15, And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, And the two tablets of testimony in his hand, tablets that were written both sides on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the work of God engraved on the tablets. And then, of course, he threw those tablets down, and they were destroyed. And so God was going to wipe them out. And it has to be one of the saddest statements in all of the Bible 
what preceded after this. Look over at chapter 33 and look at verse 3. He said there, to go up to the land flowing with milk and honey and then this one. But I will not go up among you. In other words, you go, lead them, Moses, but the Lord said, I'm not going to go up among you, lest, verse 3, I consume you on your way, for you are a stiff-necked people. You say, how did the people respond? Look at 33, verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. Just an expression of their worship. They absolutely mourned over that, that God wasn't going to go with them. And then he intercedes again for them. Look at 33 in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, uh, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Therefore, he says, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too this nation of your people. And so he intercedes with them. He intercedes in this. And look how God responded again in verse 14. He said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you, he said, rest. And he said to him, if your presence, here's what Moses said, will not go with me, do not bring up, bring us up from here. What a statement. I mean, Moses just said to the Lord, if you're not going with me, then we might as well stay home. If you're very presence won't go, then what assurance should we go at all? And so God responded even to that. Look at verse 17. He says, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, he said, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So the Lord not only relented, from wiping them off the face of the earth to spare them. He, Moses interceded, you know, obviously God's sovereign in that. But then Moses says, you've got to go. And then Moses makes this stunning request. Look at 33.18, and certainly you've seen this before. Moses said, please, he said, show me your what? Glory. I mean, it's a remarkable request. Moses is praying here, praying to Yahweh, if you will, the one who said, you can tell him, I'm the great I am. And he says, I want to see you, God. I want to see your glory. You understand what he's saying. I want to see your kavod, if you will. I don't want to just hear from you, is his prayer, but I don't want just a part of you, but I want to see the essence of who you are. Lord, I know you by name, 
but I want to know you so much more, which is what we sang today. I want to see, Moses says, your very nature. He, he says to God in this sense, I want to see your essence. God, I want to see all of you. I just want to see you. Show me your glory. I want all of you, God. Now, there's some question as to what this means. And scholars have a number of things that what Moses was saying that he desired a more complete revelation of God's glory than he had ever seen before, said one. That he wanted a full apprehension of the nature of God. One man, a scholar by the name of Keel, summarized what Moses desired to see must have been something surpassing all former revelations of the glory of God. You say, is, is, is it significant what Moses asked? I think so, because glance back at the beginning of verse 33. Do, do you remember this phrase? In 33.9, at the tent of meeting, Moses entered the tent and he, when he entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, I'll explain that in a moment, would descend and it would stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord, imagine this, would speak with Moses. In other words, as the scripture was being revealed, the Lord just spoke audibly to Moses. So not only did God reveal himself at the burning bush back earlier in the book of Exodus, but when he would go into the tent of meaning, this glory cloud would descend, and it says there that the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D, all capitals, is Yahweh. Look at verse 10, and when all the people saw the pillar of cloud, it was something visible, standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. And now this. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his, what? Friend. I mean, you talk about an unbelievable, undeniable revelation of having God speak to you in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. Then when he goes into the tent of meaning, this glory cloud, this glory cloud, if you will, pillar of fire and a cloud by day, would descend into the tent and he would talk with God. And remember when he came back to the people, his face had shone, it revealed his glory. So really what Moses is asking here and praying, God, unveil yourself to me. Show me your glory. I want to see your person, your character, your very essence. And amazingly, God responded again to him. Look at it. He says in verse 19 of chapter 33, look there. He said, I will make amazing statements. All my goodness... You say, well, what is that? His goodness, it's hard to quantify, but it is his splendor. I'm going to make my goodness. It's his 
glory, if you will. It's his utter beauty. And he says, I'm going to make my goodness, look at verse 19, pass before you. I'm going to grant this to a degree, and I will proclaim before you my name. Now, you know that the proclamation of his name, which it says there in 33, 19, the Lord is who God is. And his name is his very character. And he quotes here, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he needs to clarify something to Moses. Look at verse 20. He said, but he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and what? Live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, and, and by the way, this is not a dream this is not a vision. This is something that he beheld. He says, as my glory passes by. Now you, you say, as my kavod passes by. As my honor passes by. As my reputation passes by. As all the sum of my attributes pass by. He says, look, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you by my hand until I have passed by. Then I'm going to take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You say, what's going on here, Scott? Well, God is speaking, here's a big word for you today, anthropomorphically. What do you mean by that? He's speaking, if you will, in human terms. He's couching his language, is God, in human terms in order to communicate to us. God does not have a hand. God does not have a face. And we know that because it says in John 4, 24, that God is a, what? Spirit. So he's a spirit. He doesn't have flesh and bones like we do. So he speaks anthropomorphically in human terms, if you will, to communicate with us. He's describing, if you will, his character to us to help us understand something that's true about him. So Moses, what he's saying is, I want a full view of you, God. I want to see all of your visible glory. But God said to him, as you well know, that no man can see my face and what? Live. You say, well, why would that be? Well, it goes beyond my human language, okay? But I would say this to you. If you were in the full presence of Almighty God unveiled, you would be incinerated in a heartbeat. You would be standing before the blinding light and splendor of God's glory. Listen, beloved, the Bible tells us that no one has seen the full glory of God. In fact, it says that. You remember in John 1.18 that no one, literally, has seen God, the only God. But this is what Moses is asking for. In fact, it says in John 6.46, not that anyone has seen the Father 
except he who is from God. Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity obviously beheld the person of God. He himself is God, second person of the Trinity. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God dwells, he remember that, in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. So here he just says, no one can see me and live. So what God does is he, he covers Moses with his hand, don't forget, as his glory is passing by. He says to Moses, you'll not see my face, but you shall see my back, is what he says there in verse 23. You say, what does that mean to, to see his back? I, I think the best way to understand it is, you're, I'm going to show you just the afterglow of my person. But you can't see all of me. Grace Church, imagine if you were to stand, let me put it this way, against the blazing sun at point blank range. I mean, we know how hot it's been this, week, this weekend. But if you were to stand right before the sun, you would disintegrate. And if the sun, beloved, is that brilliant, what must God's glory be like if he himself created the sun's brilliance? You say, well, that's the end of the story. No, it's not the end of the story. The story goes on. Look at chapter 34. It says that the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone since the other ones were thrown down at the golden calf, like the first. I will write the tablets, the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning. He went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. And, and this is what is just incredible. The Lord, it, he descended in the cloud. In other words, his presence was there. And the Lord, Yahweh, not by some imagination, not by some dream, okay? He, the Lord, Yahweh, descended in the cloud, and I'm not even quite sure what this means. He stood with him there. In other words, in some way, and we'll look at this next week, that glory cloud was a representation of the physical manifestation of God. And so as he's put in that cleft of the rock, it says there that that cloud, you know, he stood with them and he proclaimed. You see that in verse 5? He preached, did Yahweh, the name of the Lord. In other words, he began to proclaim the name of the Lord. And then this miraculously, look at verse 6. The Lord passed before him, literally, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God. He said, Yahweh, Yahweh, and then he used the Hebrew term El that speaks of God's power. 
He spoke of the name of the Lord. And then look what it says there. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. What a wonderful picture there. He descends in this cloud. What descended? The glory of God. What is the glory of God? At least here, it's the visible manifestation of his nature, of his attributes, of his presence with his people. Now, we know that God is intrinsically glorious, but often in Scripture, he's revealing his glory physically and even visibly manifested. The the word when he does that is the term Shekinah. And it came, if you will, in the form of this glory cloud. And God's glory in Scripture is often revealed in a bright light that displays His presence with His people. I mean, how do you describe His beauty and His splendor and His brilliance? Sometimes God manifested this in this bright light called Shekinah, it was revealed in that glory cloud. In fact, the Hebrew term means to dwell. It means to reside with. So what God was doing is he descends into the cloud. His presence was there dwelling with Moses. And then he revealed his name two times for emphasis, Yahweh, Yahweh. Say just just for a moment there, what does that mean? It just means the God who is self-existent. The God who is self-sufficient. In other words, it is the great I am. And it speaks of God's eternal nature. And I just want you to know that he's not the great I was. He's not the great I used to be. Yahweh means I am that I am. In fact, that's what it said in Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. In other words, beloved, here's our God. He's not dependent on anyone for his existence. He is the self-existent one. God literally is without beginning. He's without end. He's without change. He's never increasing. He's never decreasing. He's dependent on no one, if you will, for anything because he's not created. What's interesting here is as we look at Exodus 34, particularly 6 and 7, it has to be one of the greatest statements in all of the Scripture. And the reason I say that is it's quoted all over the place. And in fact, Exodus 34 uh, is referred to in the very incident, this very incident, when he intercedes for his people as they fail to take the promised land in Numbers 13. This text is cited. Nehemiah will pull out portions of Exodus 34 as he confesses his sin in Nehemiah chapter 9. Jeremiah in his prophetic book will quote Exodus 34 when he's praying for the Babylonian captivity in Jeremiah 32. 
David cites Exodus 34 in Psalm 103 and many other places. Joel and Jonah knew this passage by heart and they quoted it in their respective prophecies. Exodus 34 appears in Deuteronomy 5. It appears in 1 Kings chapter 3. It appears in Lamentations 3, Daniel chapter 9, and Nahum chapter 3. This is a foundational statement about God. And I would have to say, and you know how I mean this, rightly so. It's the only place that God himself tells you what he's like. Now you have to qualify that statement. All of the scripture tells us what God is like. But I'm telling you this is God's autobiography on himself. This is who I am. This is my presence. This is my character. And then his glory passes by. And what passes by? Let me make that connection. What is his glory? I'll show you myself, not all of me, but I'll give you something of who I am. And then you see that there in verse 6, that what is proclaimed is who he is. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. In other words, God's full of mercy. He doesn't give us if you will, what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve and he gives us his grace. And then when God begins to describe who he is, he says, I'm slow to anger. Sometimes the translation says, I'm long-suffering, meaning that God is patient, that God has, you've heard me describe this word before, a long fuse. Like, I don't know what you make up about God as you think about him. But he's merciful, he's gracious, here he's slow to anger. In other words, God doesn't need any anger management classes. Literally what it's saying when it says that he's slow to anger, literally in the Hebrew, he's long-nostrilled. Sometimes we say of a guy who gets angry that he's got a short fuse. Not God. Not God has a righteous anger, but he's slow to anger. Look at number four, he's abounding in steadfast love, in loving kindness. This is who God is. This is, watch this, as his glory's passing by, what's being proclaimed is his very nature, his very essence, his very character. His glory is the unveiling of his attributes. He's a God, it says there, of faithfulness. In other words, he's certain, he's fixed. He's truthful, he's sure, he's reliable, he's dependable, his word will never pass away, and you can live with certainty. So as Moses is put in the, in the cleft of the rock, he can't see the full apprehension of God, but God not only reveals himself in this cloud, but he proclaims what? The very attributes of God. And here it says that he keeps, thou, keeps steadfast love for thousands and he repeats himself. And in other words, it's, he already said it earlier, but he's saying it's for your descendants as well. And so again, as his glory passes by, what is it? Is that he keeps his steadfast love for a thousand. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And certainly he did that in the person of 
Christ and that he's a God of justice at the same time who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I think you can see is bound up in his character is not only mercy and grace but also justice and all of this is his glory passing by. So he descends in the cloud and what is it? It's his glory but it's his attributes. Would you just notice his response in verse 8? Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and what? He worshiped. That's what we focused on last week. There's intrinsic glory. That's God is glorious by virtue of who he is if no one ever gave him glory. But then there's ascribed glory, which is to be our response to his person. And here, when he saw that, he worshiped. You say, well, Scott, make the link here between for him be the glory in the church. Let, let me just tell you this, okay? I said all that to say this, okay? The implication for us at Grace Church of the Valley is that the foundation of everything we ever do is a high view of God. The greatest thing that a local church can do is begin to unfold and unpack the glory of God and the riches of Jesus Christ. In other words, a philosophy of ministry for a local church begins here and stays here and remains here. You say, why am I saying that? Because listen, we have one purpose here, to Him be the glory, which means that every single thing we do, we want to unfold the person and character of God and the riches of Jesus Christ. Meaning this, let me say this, we are God-centered rather than man-centered. We are focused on His glory and His person rather than man and his needs. We start with God, not man. And this is to be seen in our preaching. It's to be seen in our children's ministry. Aaron's over there teaching, asking one of the kids even early this morning. They're learning two things all year round. In fact, they're learning two things for basically six years in a row unfolding the character of God and his attributes and unfolding the glory of the gospel. All of the curriculum goes to that effort. I just want you to know this is who we are. So when Paul says to him be the glory, he's trying to unpack the glory, the kavod of God, which is based in his nature and his character. Obviously, our students are about this, our adults are about this, our men and women's ministry are about this, our lyrics and music are about this. I mean, I could ask Blake afterward, but we used to say you could listen to 30 contemporary songs until you find one that's lyrically okay to sing. So why would you say that, Scott? Because we're here about the character of God. It influences our service, it influences our music, it influences what we do at Summerfest on Wednesday night, unlikely convert, Acts chapter 26, a high view of God is the heartbeat of our evangelism. You say, well, uh, pastor, why would you send nine people to Albania? Real simple, we think God's name is great, right? We think God's name is glorious, 
we think God needs to be magnified. He's intrinsically glorious, but we want to tell other people about him and tell them about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, and I'm closing here. David Wells said this in one of my favorite books, No Place for the Truth. Listen to what he said about God's character. He said, it is this God majestic and holy in his being who has disappeared from the modern evangelical world. He has been replaced in many quarters by a God who is slick and slack, whose word is a plaything for those who merely listen to themselves, whose church is a mall in which the religious, their pockets filled with the coin of need, do their business. He said, theology is dying, not because the academy has failed to devise adequate procedures for reconstructing it, but because the church has lost its capacity for it. Wells went on to say, if the church can begin to find a place for theology by refocusing itself on the centrality of God, if it can rest upon his sufficiency, it can recover its moral fiber, then it will have something to say in a world now drowning in modernity. Listen, the greatest thing we can do is unpack the character of God. We certainly don't want to do that in a dry way. We certainly don't ever think that uh, preaching, teaching should ever be boring. In fact, that would be a sin. But it is our goal, fathers, to build into your heart a high view of God. Everything we're doing at Equippers moves us to that end. We want you to be a sage, wise man who knows God, who knows the gospel, and that ever is always what we're doing through our entire ministry. At least our, our attempt that way, right? We're not perfect. We haven't arrived far from it. But all I know is we're going to bring you to your, your child, to the character of God. Your junior hires are going to hear it. The high schoolers are going to hear it. 18 to 24 is going to tell you about the glory. In fact, they just finished a section on the attributes of God. Listen, California is a unique place, and we need to get ourselves ready. And one of the ways we can prepare ourselves is to put a high view of God in our mind that it begins to frame and form all of our lives so that whether we eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. That's our prayer. Would you bow your head with me?